Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson with a bonus podcast because the people wanted it, Sam. They want to get our, you know, just immediate reactions to the NFL draft. Did you get yeah, any sleep my, this weekend? Though, well, that's my immediate reaction, right? Is that it's over now so we can actually <laughs> sleep um, and, you know, a little bit of a little bit of a break before we get back to, you know, more crazy work. It is um, it is quite the weekend. It is. A, it was a fun a fun weekend in the middle of a lot of craziness in the world. It was nice to uh, be able to have some uh, sports drama to mm. debate and discuss. So so let's just have some fun with it uh, by giving out the winners and losers. OK, this will be our initial reaction. The winners and losers, not always a team. Sometimes it's a player. Where do you think Aaron Rodgers is going to fall on that spectrum? We'll find yes. out. We before, will find out before we get into that. A couple of like weird stats and quirks from this draft that I just think are funny. Yeah. One, um, the Panthers became the first team ever to draft 100% defense. Nothing but defense. First team, like common era draft and like seven plus picks or whatever. But basically the first amazing. team ever to just, just pick defense, nothing else. Um, what else came up? The Vikings picked like 128 times or something. It yeah, was, give it was or insane. take. It was right there. Um, they ended up at some point. Heading into day three, they had, I think, was it 13 picks on day three? They ended with 15, right? You, I mean, they literally they, 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 they drafted two drafts, 15 players. Two drafts worth of players. Yeah. But on day three, they went into day three with 13 picks. It's crazy. Still yeah. to make. By the end of the draft, like we were 10 picks away from the end of the draft, and the Vikings had four of them. Yeah. It was, it was nuts. 
Um, the Saints did what Mike Renner was calling for them to do all the way along and like trade back up and up and, you know, because they didn't have many needs. Traded away their entire draft like sometime in the sixth round and then traded back into the draft they had no more picks for um, to, like, to draft another Taysom Hill. Just to get um, Tommy Stevens, former, uh, formerly of Penn State, currently of Mississippi State. This might be my favorite one, though. Eight drafts, 54 picks, zero trades down. Dave Gettleman's streak continues. Never traded down the draft. Ever. That is unbelievable. That has to be the whole. I mean, it's not even the strategy that I that I said the other day. I said there was that one team that has the list of players, and they say, "Okay, here's three guys. Yeah, if one of those three guys is there, I'm taking them. If not, I trade down." No, this is literally is, just like I'll take the next guy on my board. He is the archetype of um, evaluator hubris. Like he is the guy that yeah. goes, "I am better at this." than you are and i am a hundred a hundred percent confident in my ability to take players i will i don't to be fair they had a good draft i'm not like him for that but they might make my winners list right but nobody is great at this right the right. strike rate of anybody is relative like generally crappy you're gonna hit some you're gonna miss some but overall it is not a good strike rate for anybody so just generally speaking, it's not a particularly sound strategy to have 100% confidence in your ability, and yet he clearly does. The funny thing is, is that could work the other way as well. I mean, when, when you, I got my printed out draft board, when you have, when you put your board together, like you feel good about that order, right? And you start to see all right. of the players you'd love to have. And then you're like, I, I would think the other way, I'd be like, man, I only have seven picks. Like I got to wait 32 more picks until I got to get my next guy. I would love to accumulate accumulate picks in part because I feel good about the board that I put together as well. I get to get more of my guys, you know, so it is interesting that he's landed there with zero trade back. Right. <laughs> that is amazing. amazing. All right. Let's get to it. We'll go back and forth with um, with winners and losers. I'll let you start, Sam. We'll start positive. We'll just go through all the winners first. Yeah. And we're just gonna yeah finish. So alternate winners, right? All right, yeah, alternate winners. Who's your okay. biggest winner 2020 NFL draft? So I'm not going to go in the order I wrote them down in because That's okay. That I won't think throw me off. Bigger winners are lower. Um I think Drew Locke might be the single biggest winner of this entire draft. Yeah. Um I wrote an art we covered it before on the last podcast and I wrote the article as well that you know Jerry Judy is the single best player that the Broncos could possibly have picked to aid the development of Drew Locke. Because A, he will be wide open and that increases just his margin for error, right? Just you don't need to be as accurate when you're throwing to a wide the hell open receiver. But the critical second area was that idea of he just paints a better picture. So Locke, part of this whole getting used to the NFL and just being good is adjusting to the fact that guys are no longer three yards open. Guys are kind of tightly covered even when they're open. And when you're reading that, it's gonna it takes an adjustment period, right? Because when you looked up and you looked at that guy in college, you would immediately go, no, he's not open. I'm going on to the next guy. In the NFL, you're like, ah, that's kind of open. I should probably take a shot at that. And that split second of hesitation, of thought process is what slows you down. And that's how you get sacked in the pocket and lose a fumble and get downgraded heavily. So Jerry Judy changes that because he's college open in, in the NFL or should be. So that was great. But they then went like crazy. <laughs> I thought Judy on his own was a great spot. They come back in the second round and get KJ Hamler, who, I, you know, we've t- I wrote an article about it. We've talked about him is one of the most fascinating X factors in this entire draft has crazy 
speed, has got some uh, run after the catch skills, questionable hands, um, but he's a playmaker. Like, you don't have to watch more than one KJ Hamler game from college to come away with the conclusion that he can change games in a heartbeat and probably will at any level of football. Um, and as I say, he's blazing fast. They get Albert O laid down the draft. Like they are just accum- they're trying to out chiefs the chiefs. They're trying to get as many fast human beings as human as possible. The way you just described Hamler too, don't you think having Judy there takes some pressure off him too? Hell like yeah. uh, so many teams would have drafted him in the second round. He would have been their only receiver choice in the draft. And you would have had really high expectations for him. Now you don't have to lower expectations necessarily, but he's the number three, right? You have Corlin Sutton, you have Jerry Judy, Hamler's the number three. So he could be your gimmicky player, right? I mean, the, we were talking about this a little bit off air. Like, how do you find Tyreek Hill? How do you find a legitimate deep threat that changes coverages, that changes what the defense does? And the Tyreek Hill model could also be like, oh, you know, we'll scheme up some plays for this dude, but he's not a polished receiver yet. Give Hamler time to become a more polished receiver, get better with his route running, but also the ability to move him to the slot, move him outside, let him run the jet sweep stuff. And when you put those three dudes on the field, Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, that's tough to cover. How yeah. do I deploy my defensive backs to cover those guys? Then you throw into the equation Noah Fant, who and again, Alberto, two speedsters, and, a tight end. And, and Alberto. Now, Austin doesn't think he's fast, but he ran fast at the combine. They drafted Alberto, Drew Locke's college tight end. But Noah Fant, another limited player. The best thing about having Noah Fant or, say, Hamler, who they have some limitations, right? is surrounding them with other good, talented players that can pick up the slack for him as well. So Noah Fant is not a great all-around tight end. He's not, I don't think he's a great route runner. I don't know. He doesn't have great ball skills, but he runs fast through the defense, and you can scheme him up as well. So they have four, at least four legitimate dudes that are tough, tough to cover. The um, Trying to come up with a comp for K.J. Hamler was always interesting, right? Last year... Mike Renner was convinced that Andy Isabella was Brandon Cooks. And that never sat well with me. I never liked that comp. It just I didn't see it. I think Hamler is closer to Brandon Cooks than Andy Isabella ever was. Um, but the, like the same reasons apply. Like the things that the things that Renner saw in Isabella that he thought were Cooks like, I didn't really think were necessarily there, but I think they are for Hamler. And then the other one that spot that came up when Percy Harvin you know, the, the, his uh, comeback video resurfaced, you know, his slow-mo run up a, a parking lot or whatever it was. Um, people were throwing out some Percy Harvin videos and it kind of remember, just flashback to what a player he was. Now, Harvin had this, this sort of dual ability to play in the backfield as well. Like for a small guy, he was bizarrely capable of being a running back. Um, mm. But he had... He had this unique style that I've never seen anybody else do, but there's a little bit of it in KJ Hamler. And he's he's got this insane ability. One the most amazing thing to me about Harvin was that I have never seen a human being catch a ball and immediately dart up field with zero wasted motion, right? Usually like if you imagine a guy catching a hitch, usually you see them catch the hitch, hit the ground and then either turn around and figure out which way they're going to beat the DB or like hesitate and you know, spin to one side or other. Harvin didn't do that. He would catch it and immediately just start firing upfield. There was no yeah. wasted motion. And he, he would break angles with that first step because you're used to the guy hesitating before he goes somewhere. And Harvin right. didn't. So by the time you figured out that he was already gone, it's too late. 
And the thing that was interesting is I never figured out why Harvin wasn't used more as a deep threat because he was he's one of those run under the let it drop in the bucket receivers. He didn't go up and get it, but he was blazing fast. Yeah. Like if you ran him up the slot vertically, you weren't covering him. He was too fast. That's the way Penn State used Hamler. So I think there's a little bit of Percy Harvin in him, albeit a sort of light, lighter weight version. Speaking of Percy Harvin, he's posted a video. He's yeah. trying to make a comeback. Yeah. Um, Sam, I couldn't figure it out. So, you know, the Josina Anderson, I think, posted the video, right? And it's a video of him running up a hill, a concrete yes. hill. Yes. In slow motion. Yes. It's, it's a slow-mo video. It so is. I made the very funny joke mm. that it looks like he lost a step. And then somebody came back and said uh, he's running uphill on concrete. Yes. When I looked back at those two tweets, and mine, pretty funny joke, Sam, had about 350, 400 likes. A lot of people, uh -huh. yeah, pretty funny joke, Steve. The guy who went full well actually on me had more likes than me. Yeah. I mean, I, I just lost faith in humanity, man. That people Twitter, just, it's Twitter ridiculous. is a place to lose faith in humanity. Anyway, um, good description of Hamler, fast guys, Percy Harvin, first step quickness and all that stuff. Drew Locke is a winner because he's got some serious playmakers. Right. And like, I know not every team can double up at wide receiver, but I strongly encourage it. And it's for reasons like this. When you start to look at that receiver depth chart, it's like, oh, no, how do I cover these guys? That's what right. I want it for my offense. It's funny. Like at times people were saying, you know, maybe the Broncos are still in the quarterback market. Like what if Herbert starts to slide? Does he, can John Elway resist a six foot five guy with a cannon? And like John Elway is tied to Drew Locke. Like he does not have time to bend this thing and start over. He is going all in with Drew Locke. And we saw that like reaffirmed with some pretty like solid emphasis in this draft. Not only are they all in on Drew Locke, but he is going out of his way to make sure that guy has the best possible situation. And, you know, even late down the draft, he signs Mike's guy, uh, Natani Muti, you know, one of the best offensive line prospects in this draft and got him for a steal because the dude's got extensive injury history. But he has given him weapons. He's given him an offensive lineman. Like Elway is, whatever you say about Elway, and he's taken a lot of justifiable crap for his decisions, but like that's about as good as you could possibly do for your young quarterback who has some question marks. There's another point, though, that um, I think uh, George has made quite a bit, which is, uh, and I think both of the forecast guys, it's like you also have to know about what your quarterback is sooner rather than later, right? The biggest mistake that teams make is sit and wait for the quarterback to develop for four or five years. The sooner you can put him in position to succeed, the sooner you can move on. And if you do have to move on from Drew Locke, it's not like those playmakers are going anywhere. You know, if you stumble into the next guy, whoever it is, they're still there. So um, uh, if you got oh, – I wish we were live right now, Sam. If we were live, mm. we could tell everybody to go read the draft grades. Go read the PFF draft grades. They're crushing it. Yeah, yeah we're not Thousands live. and thousands and millions of people on the site reading it right now. So anyway, Drew Locke's an absolute winner. Maybe not in real life, but at least in the draft. Well, it might be um, after this. It might be after this. All right, I'm going to go with my first winner. That's the Miami Dolphins uh, for fooling me first. Yes. Uh, for <laughs> here's here's the biggest thing, right? You're just such an easy mark. I don't. I usually don't buy into that stuff. I just decided to. Whatever. Um, the thing is, we, we talked about this for weeks on end. Go get your quarterback, right? You've they've built up all this draft capital so that they could go get their guy. 
and they didn't have to do it. Either by playing chess while Steve was playing checkers and, you know, really just just playing the game and, and building up Herbert hype. Or they just had a really good feel for what was going to happen up there. Like, hey, Washington's not going to move off the spot and D- Detroit's not and the Giants aren't. Maybe they just had a good feel. Um, but they did a great job to get Tua at five and to keep the rest of their draft picks is a huge win. The other thing I'll say about their draft, I don't necessarily agree with every player that they took, but the thought process behind the positions that they took, I like. Uh, multiple offensive linemen early. That works. Robert Hunt's a pretty good pick in the second round. A little high for a couple of the linemen. Noah Igbenogany, the fact that he can cover the slot. Again, the, op- the same thing is, the, it's like the same thing as receivers, right? Get various skill sets in the secondary. He's your slot corner with your two big corners on the outside. And then on day two, getting Brandon Jones, once again, high compared to the PFF board, but the Patrick Chung cop that Renner put in there and the descriptor that like, hey, this dude can cover tight ends. He, if he could truly be that Patrick Chung type, cover tight ends, Igbenogany in the slot, the two, uh, Xavier Howard, Byron Jones on the outside, that is how you build a secondary. That is beautiful by the Dolphins. Yeah, I think the first pick alone, the playing the Tua thing, the way they played it, was masterful, and that alone makes them winners from this draft weekend. I think they also did other smart things that I like as well, but A, they took the right quarterback at the right spot. Perfect. You didn't screw that up. That was a good thing. B, they clearly orchestrated that in terms of, you know, playing people like you for a chump. Um, You're just so never going to let that go, huh? Well, not for a while. I mean, it's still, you know, it's the day of the draft, Steve. I can still, I still got some mileage out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they played you. They played a bunch of other people. They convinced everybody that it wasn't going to happen and they didn't have to trade away any of their capital to get him. So I think that was really smart. Great job. I wanted you guys doing your sort of review, I think, this morning were, I think it was Mike who started to criticize some of the Dolphins moves because it was like, you know, I thought with their early picks, they had a concerted plan and then they sort of deviated from the plan and you got guys like Raekwon Davis and Robert Hunt and blah, 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 right? But here's the thing. I don't think that, I don't think that's inconsistent, right? Because a strategy is not taking all of the same style type of thing, right? You diversify. Yeah, they got a lot of role, they got a lot of role players. But you can't yeah, but, yeah. but the point is you can't just go, well, our plan is to take sort of young upside athletes, right? Because you can't like you can't just draft 10 of those guys. Right. The, like the strike rate will be bad. You've got to take some of those guys and then in order for that to function, you've got to take, you know, you diversify, you spread your risk and you take some guys you think are safer and, you know, so there's a bunch of different things. So I think I think that is consistent with their strategy that you take these couple of mid-round guys you think will just plug in and be solid and you know may have a limited ceiling but then that's why you've taken the the big risk guys elsewhere so i don't think that's inconsistent i think that's part of what the strategy was i think overall this was a pretty solid draft for them and then late on they're the team that halted the slide of curtis weaver and they did I, yeah he was it was I a good why pick. he yeah i get why he slipped but i think still picking him up that late is going to prove to be a steal I mean, the the alternative to what you're saying is, again, looking at my my draft board, looking at all those picks, having two more firsts, having two twos, having a three. Maybe they could have gotten some better players. Sure. You know, like if they could, if, if they instead of gotten Austin, getting Austin Jackson, if they had gotten Josh Jones with one of those picks, mm-hmm. um, gotten a receiver that would have helped instead of a run stopper. You know what I mean? Like there's there's all these like what ifs. Um, but 
again, the thing I like and the reason why Miami's a winner, first off, they got their quarterback in Tua that I believe in. And I think the rest of their picks all had specific roles. We're going to go team by team. So we're going to ha- we're going to come back Monday with some uh, AFC analysis and Thursday with some NFC analysis. We'll get into like the nuts and bolts of the class and the players and how they fit in and all that stuff. But um, for now, you know, starts with Tua and I think a lot of the other, um, you know, strategic moves that Miami made was pretty good. Yeah, and so. I think, like I said, I think nailing the Tua thing gives you leeway to, you know, to not maximize everything, right? Like taking Austin Jackson instead of Josh Jones. It's not where we would have gone, but you've bought yourself some benefit of the doubt because of the Tua thing. All right, get to your next winner. Next winner, Dallas Cowboys. This draft for them was absurd. Um, here's the thing, right? Remember right before the draft, uh, Mike Florio comes out and he's like, Jerry Jones is going to cut himself off from everybody and nobody's going to be able to stop him doing exactly what he wants. It's amazing. Maybe Jerry Jones is the greatest GM in human history and he's been held back by all the other idiots around him. Copycat league. Let give your owner the keys on a yacht. (laughs) Look at his draft. It's absurd. Like this is obviously the CD lamb thing we talked about. We covered round one CD lamb falls to them. It's like Christmas, right? Trevon Diggs was a guy that was being talked about by a lot of people for Dallas at 17. They're able to come back, get him in the second round. Um, Neville Gallimore in the third, like this, then they get day three. You're into Reggie Robinson was a guy, a ton of people loved as their sleeper corner that had been, you know, not the best player in the world in college, but had all the tools to be a better NFL player. Tyler Biadish is your center to potentially replace Travis Frederick, or at least be in that competition. Bradley and I, like this is, this is genuinely a draft that like, if you were putting it together in a sim, it would be like this, the sim is broken. Like there's no way the draft ends up falling this way and you get all these players. Nothing sums up the draft better than looking at the way teams draft back to back years sometimes and seeing the stark difference. Dallas last year, what, their draft was a train wreck. And now in part of it, it, every draft looks bad when you don't have a first round pick or it looks worse. Like it looks, you know, you, you're missing that star power, that name power. They didn't have a first rounder last year because they didn't have, you know, they traded for Amari Cooper, but their first pick was Tristan Hill right? Who yeah. you liked, but not in the second round, right? Right. Yeah, it yeah. was kind of like the bears first pick last year. didn't come till the third round and they took it a running back, right? It's just like, it's really tough. Um, and then every other pick after that, like all they got was Tony Pollard, right? That actually looks like a contributor going forward. They've got four or five more contributors this year than last year's draft. You know, just, just looking at it, of course it might not work out perfectly, but I think on paper where they got guys, um, tied to the positions that they got um i thought was great neville gallimore one of my favorite again we'll talk about it more as we go team by team gallimore he just flies around at defensive tackle i'm a big fan of that but yeah Diggs. i like that they address corner where you know we talked about that's got to be a um a multi-year plan there to to just replenish in the secondary so it's uh yeah i think dallas absolutely a winner but seriously, Dak, if, Dak uh, Prescott's a winner, Sam. I mean, if Jerry, really. if Jerry cut himself off from the rest of the Cowboys, they need to give him more authority to make decisions without anybody interfering because that how, went about as well as it could possibly have gone. How true do you think all that is? Which part? So just first off, that like that Jerry's writing the name on the card, so to speak, that he is like, how prepped is Jerry? Very. How much how much influence does he have along the way? Is he in every He's, every last meeting? 
And is he saying, nope, I like this corner over that? Like, is he actually shifting the board along yeah. the way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You think so? Yeah, yeah. Did you watch the Dallas you Cowboys know for sure. all or Not nothing? A, I got to watch that. Like, he's definitely, he's, he's the GM. Like, he's making those calls. Um, he, I'm sure he's got plenty of influence and, you know, outside people pitching in and all yeah. this kind of thing. And I'm sure that it's collaborative to some degree, but it's his call. Like, he's doing that. Awesome. He did a good job. He Very really good. did. Um, next I mean, time I, we see him out absurd. at the combine, we'll say good job. Hopefully, also, the idea that he did that from his yacht is just brilliant. I know. It really is. I'm so sad, actually, that on day three, he didn't, like, take it to the sun deck. It was <laughs> I know, like, right? He was there in board shorts just phoning up these guys. That's, like, all of it. Somebody showed, like, the, the four phases of Goodell, and he starts, like, in a suit or you know, whatever right. he's wearing day one, and then he's, like, lounging by day. That's, like, how we feel, right? You get so much energy on night one, and by, like, round six, it's like, all right, what, what happened this weekend? What's going on? I also always assumed, I told you this before, but like, he, you know, he does his bit usually to a packed house or Radio City or Nashville or wherever the hell he's going to be. Like, I always figured it was just this like wooden delivery because there's that delay between you pitching to thousands of people and there being some kind of reaction there. You're talking about Goodell. But he has, yeah, yeah. He has the same delivery when he's standing in his man cave just talking to camera. It's like everything's slow and wooden and like red. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, Raj. All right, my turn for a winner. I'm going Justin Herbert. Oh. Because, you know, people are talking about the, you know, depending on how you feel about Justin Herbert, I think a lot of people don't love what the Chargers did. We don't love what the Chargers did because we don't love Herbert. But if you're Justin Herbert, I think that's a good situation to be in. The same way we're talking about Drew Locke has put into, been put into a good situation from a playmaker standpoint. Justin Herbert's going to Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, and Hunter Henry, plus a very capable defense, you know, say what you want about the chargers uh, and, and how they always seem to screw it up and all that stuff. And there's still some work to do on the offensive line and, and all that, but Herbert's in a nice situation, right? And we'll see. Um, the other part about that situation is I think they would be comfortable rolling with Tyrod Taylor as the starter. You know, if Tyrod Taylor can be a starter over Baker Mayfield for three weeks, then he absolutely can be a starter over Justin Herbert. And I don't know if the chargers need to force the issue with Justin Herbert. You can have him yeah. sit. The problem with that is you are immediately in that Blake Bortles situation of, yeah, the plan is to sit him for a year, but the guy in front of him is not particularly good, and immediately you're going to get calls for, throw him in there, and like it lasts three weeks before you have to throw him in. I know. Now, Tyrod Taylor's better than Chad Henney, so it might last longer than that, but... Well, also, the other bonus is they have no fans, so there's nobody to actually exert that pressure. Um, but, you know, I just think that anytime you take a guy that high, it's pretty hard to keep him on the bench. I'm torn on what I would do. I, th th so much of this show is us sitting here hypothetically saying, what would we do if we were in charge, right? It's fun, right? It is a lot of fun. Hypothetically, if I was in charge, would I be disciplined enough to say, listen, and, and, and sell this to the fan base. Listen. Justin Herbert is our guy. We really believe in him long term. We also think for the best case scenario to occur, he, he can't take a snap this year until like the very end of the season. Right. And then you would cite some fake study and be like, well, it worked for Carson Palmer. Look at Patrick Mahomes. You say, look at Patrick Mahomes. He sat 16 weeks and then made one start and then became MVP the next season. You would try to sell that to your fan base. I, I don't know if I'd have the discipline to do it. 
because the tricky part with the Chargers is you're sitting on a really, really good roster. But if I had a bad roster, I was saying this about Jared Goff a couple years ago. And I know Jeff Fisher was like pretty much a lame duck coach at that point. But I was saying I agree with him not playing Jared Goff. They didn't put him out there till like week 11 or 12. And he was a disaster when he got out there. Mm -hmm. But I was like, listen, you didn't draft Jared Goff to win 2016 football games. You drafted him to win in 17, 18, 19 and beyond. So at the time, I completely agreed with the concept of just like let him sit until he's ready. Like you have to do whatever is best for his development. The Chargers part is tricky because they can win now. Like they could be a playoff team next year if they had good quarterback play. So it's a tough balance with the Rams in 2016. I was like, eh, just just sit them. Um, I don't know if I'd be disciplined enough to do that. But um, on paper, again, I think it sounds great to sit a guy and let him develop and then not deal with um, the fan base and the pressure. But um, I think Herbert's a winner. He went to a good situation from a playmaker standpoint, which is better than a completely rebuilding team. So, OK, uh, well, let me. Let me essentially piggyback off that then, because I think Jordan Love is a winner for effectively the same reason. Um, yeah. Whatever we think about Jordan Love, and frankly, it's not great, uh, and whatever you think about what it does to the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and the whole dynamic there, and we will get to that, uh, this is the perfect spot for for Jordan Love. Like, for him personally, there, I'm not sure you could have landed in a better situation. You were a first-round pick that the team traded up to make happen, so they want you. And yet you ha- you're sitting behind Aaron Rodgers, who has a massive safety. Like You're not going anywhere near the field for at least like two years um, unless Rodgers gets hurt, at which point you're basically you've got a shot to nothing, right? You get a couple of games to take a swing at it, and if you're not ready, you're back to the bench. But you have basically a couple of years to work on your game and fix this, the many problems with it. You know, figure out how to stop throwing the ball to linebackers in simple, you know, drops, simple zone drops underneath. Figure out how to stop making those crazy decisions. Figure out how to get a little bit more accurate on those intermediate deep passes. Like, he can fix his game in two years and then potentially the Packers have an out with that Rodgers contract. They can move seamlessly in to the Jordan Love era, and everything's gravy. Like, this could not have gone better for Jordan Love. So I I think I do read the comments, Sam. I think somebody may have commented on some of the stuff that we've done and said, you guys should love this strategy, right? Because you guys always say take shots on quarterbacks and blah, 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 and all that stuff, right? And yes, but but I also think the baseline for my strategy is generally like if you don't have a top eight quarterback. Like, it usually starts with if you don't have the guy, keep swinging. Right. So if our friends, the Giants or if our friends, the Bills or the Bears or the Lions, even, you know, with some uncertainty about Matthew Stafford's future, if they were taking shots at quarterback, we'd say, hey, that's a pretty good move, because I think if for this to pay off for the Packers, Jordan Love either becomes a star or it was a shot that you took that he could become a star and he plays really well in the preseason and you get an offer of two first round picks or a first or whatever. You get this incredible haul and it, you either like break even with just a fir- another first round pick later or or even more. I mean, that's like your best case scenario for him, right? Do the Packers still have a top eight quarterback? Oh, now. Now you're asking that question, right? Here's the, so. I well okay. 
in isolation. And I think Dan Orlovsky tried to make this argument until the rest of their draft happened and it just blew up in his face. But in isolation, the Jordan Love move on its own is not crazy because Rodgers has declined from where he used to be. We are legitimately now able to ask the question of whether he is still a top eight quarterback or where he is now in this pantheon. Is he still top five? Is he still top ten? Where is he, right? What, all we know for sure is he's no longer top one. He's no longer top three, right? We can, I think, safely say that yeah. for both those answers. So it's you, you, you're no longer in the position of Rodgers is completely unimpeachable. You cannot touch him. You don't ever think about a quarterback because you've got Rodgers. Now it's a discussion. So I don't think in abstract terms what they did, which is, hey, we've got this guy 36 years old or whatever he is, not playing well by comparison to what he used to be. He's potentially on the downswing. Do we start looking for the succession plan? And if we do love a guy, at that point, we've talked before, there's, there's, there's basically no wrong amount of like going after it, right? Like Dave Gettleman is not yeah. wrong to take a guy at six if he believes that's the guy. He's wrong if the guy yeah. isn't the guy, but that's different. The Packers are not wrong to trade up and get a guy in the middle of the first round if they believe he is the answer. If he's the next guy, we disagree with them, but that's that's a different conversation. The problem is then what happened with the rest of their draft, right? Which is, okay, we secured the succession plan. Rodgers is going to be pissed, but that's fine. That's a different problem. Now let's, now let's help the rest of the team. And their next pick was a plodding, bruising running back for 2020 NFL. That's that's where yeah, that's where things got even way more head scratching. And so the thing about Rodgers though, he has ranked in the top 8 in our quarterbacks over the last 2 years. He was 10th in 2017. How far in the top 8? 6th and 7th over the last 2 years. <laughs> and now t- in top 8 is this hypothetical like it's like playing the percentages. It'd be like this guy Hang that on. I'm calling what cutoff are you using? Cause I think last I can drop him another two spots last year. If you include breeze and Tannehill 20% on the, uh, with the playoffs that puts him Oh, with the playoffs, he Seventh. had a good game. We had one good game in the playoffs. 83.6. Cause in the regular season, he was ninth. <clears throat> right. But so here's the thing about the top eight cutoff. Matt Ryan's a top eight quarterback in, in, in this world that I'm living in, but he was like 15th last year and he was like ninth the year before. But it's 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 like in a given year, I've let me make this up. I have a 60 percent confidence level that this guy lands within the top eight, 70 percent, because sure. there's only a there's only a handful of guys you say that about. Right. And I, I say, I'm not making this stuff up completely. Like I looked at our top 50 PFF grades over the last decade, and I think it's like nine guys make up 90 percent of them. Right. There's this there's this hypothetical cutoff at eight or nine guys and it's all the guys you would expect brady breeze rogers manning right those are the four guys that make up 50 percent of those top Mm -hmm. 50 grades and then it's that what's been the next tier over the last decade russell wilson now mahomes and lamar could be in there but they just they haven't had as much time but it's russell wilson big ben andrew Locke, philip rivers matt ryan those types right um so like when i say all those names you feel pretty good about a franchise quarterback honestly once you get below those names Matthew Stafford, Derek Carr, Jimmy G, Carson Wentz, Baker, like all these guys have had years where they've gotten up there, but but it's like one out of three, one out of four, one out of five, right? So I don't know that Rodgers out of, is out of that band yet. My point is if you have a guy that's not in that band of 
quarterbacks, then I like the concept of always find the next quarterback. Obviously, what we don't like is you trade up, you get Jordan Love, who we have less confidence in. Our projections don't love him as much anyway. And when you, if I think if we honestly look back at Rodgers' last two years, that supporting cast is poor. The yeah. same thing we've said about Tom Brady, that supporting cast has been poor. And it is really poor looking forward, right? Like when we look at Devontae Adams as the number one wide receiver, who's awesome, right? But then it, it is just a bunch of big dudes who have not developed yet. Marquez, Van, uh, Valdez, Scantling, Equinemius St. Brown, Devin Funches they bring in, Jake Kumaro, Alan Lazard. I mean, everybody's 6'3 to 6'5 and just like, okay. Right? Like Valdez Scantling has, you know, shown they could be a pretty good deep threat, but he, like, as like a number three. And the tight end position isn't much better either. As much as I love Jay Sternberger last year, third round pick, like he'll be pretty good, but it's like him and a blocking tight end, Mercedes Lewis. What are they doing? Yeah. So this is supposed to be the Jordan Love good part. Let's get to the killing them part. Sorry, I just ruined it. I just ruined the entire pod. Don't worry. We'll get back to it. But yeah, let's, that was Jordan Love good. So great winner, Jordan Love. He's gone to a perfect situation. You could have pushed me off that quicker. Go ahead. I know. I, I, I got too caught up in it. I was enjoying it. And then I realized that's not what, that's not what we're here for, Steve. Yeah. I know. So we'll move on. Well, who's your next winner? Um, so Jordan Love's in a great situation. My next winner, next on the list, the Cincinnati Bengals. The okay. Cincinnati Bengals. They did. They took care of business. They took yeah. the right quarterback. Um, they have, you know, you. there's always so much excitement getting into day two. You're sitting there at the top of the draft. What are you going to do? We kept saying, eh, hey, Josh Jones would be great. I love that they took a wide receiver like T. Higgins, mm-hmm. uh, a guy with, you know, what Michael Irvin calls him an area code guy. You know, you just throw it into the area code. He can area catch it. Yeah, that's T. Higgins. Incredible okay. catch radius. Um, so I think the Bengals, there's excitement in our, our new hometown of Cincinnati. Uh, Burrow's good. Higgins is good. Logan Wilson, the linebacker they get in the third, is okay. Uh, they're moving in the right direction. They're the big winners because um, Andy Dalton's a good quarterback. He got them to the playoffs a ton, but you never really believed he was going to win a game. I think that you believe Joe Burrow is going to win you a playoff game here in Cincinnati. Yeah, I like. I mean, obviously Joe Burrow was you. You didn't make a mess of that, right? It was given to you, but you didn't screw it up. Good. T. Higgins, I like um, in terms of hey, let's let's get this guy, a guy let's get this guy a, a receiver to come into it with him. You know, we've got AJ Green's not there for a long period of time. We know that he's kind of on the way out. We've got uh, Tyler Boyd. Like we have some guys, but hey, let's get this guy someone to come in with and develop chemistry right from the get go. Um, and you know, then we can add some other players further down the draft. But I, I think the Bengals did a good job. They're definitely a winner. That I mean, Burrow, in theory, Burrow is good enough to completely transform the fortunes of that franchise in a heartbeat, and that in and of itself makes them winners, right? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I this is fascinating because you know we don't fill needs in the draft. The Bengals drafted legitimately three linebackers. Uh, Akeem Davis Gaither from Appalachian State has some pass rush skills too, but like three legitimate linebackers. They've been, that's how long has a linebacker, how long has that been a weakness for the Bengals? Yeah, ever, forever. Right? Like even when Vontez Perfect was there, it's like, all right, this is, he's good, but man, they've got some issues. So they attacked it straight on. Is this your last winner now? Uh, no, I got more. I got two more, right? You got five? I only got four. Yeah, that's what we were doing. Well, I'll give you them both at once because one of them is kind of a short, throwaway one but basically anybody that ever ran a 4-3 is a winner in this draft because everybody was loading up on speed um apparently the chiefs 
broke the NFL. It's a copycat league, and the Chiefs are really fast, so now everybody is trying to get fast. The Broncos were trying to out-Chiefs the Chiefs. The Raiders, we thought the ghosts of Al Davis came back and started drafting the fastest guy on the board. Um, the Eagles went charging after. Like, everybody. There were so many teams that were just targeting speedsters. And whether it was, you know, trades for veterans like Marquise Goodwin, um, whether it was drafting guys, you know, in the mid-rounds who were just pure speed receivers or whatever – speed was the winner of this draft. So if you ever ran a 4-3 in your life and did it in a situation that wasn't a pro day just before the draft in a grainy video that people questioned, you were flying up the board. Um, I mean, that was... So so that was my speed one. Um, I agree on the speed thing. I'm addicted to speed. We've talked about... I'm looking for that guy too. Me and the NFL, we agree. And then my other actual winner was Teddy Bridgewater. Um not because they gave many help whatsoever, because they didn't, but because neither did they undermine his position in any way, shape, or form. He's a real I starter. Th- well, yeah, I thought that you know Teddy Bridgewater's contract was such that they were certainly not out of the realm of the Justin Herbert sweepstakes. Like if he had been available at seven, it would have been an interesting decision. Same with uh, Tua, but neither of them were, so they didn't take a quarterback. In fact, they didn't take any offensive player, and they just loaded up on defense. So the Panthers um, rebuild is starting off on defense, but Teddy Bridgewater will be the starter there. And frankly, they got some weapons, you know, whether it's Curtis Samuel, DJ yeah, Moore, do. Christian McCaffrey, like they've got some offensive players. So I think Teddy gets to breathe easy for a year. It's, it's his job for at least a season. One of my favorite things to do with drafts is to find out, is to see if there was like a theme. And I don't know if it always works out that way, but there's sometimes there are, you mentioned the Broncos. It's like get faster, right? find playmakers the Panthers it was like first off it was get defense right because you mentioned it's every defensive player that's what they drafted but it was also like safe run stop first like win in the trench let's establish the trenches first it is hilarious right they went defensive tackle defensive end safety corner safety like they built they their actual draft is how they you know a lot of teams like to build their defense that was the theme um we'll t- we'll go through the team by team but that was what they wanted to do uh, yeah. in Carolina is, By the way, guys, that foundation. if you want to read about all the players your team just drafted, use the promo code DRAFT2020. That gets you 30% off all annual PFF subscriptions, including the draft guide. So dive into the draft guide, 1,200 plus pages. It doesn't come laminated like Steve's one, but, you know, it come, it's, it's good. It's worth having anyway. We're reasonably certain that that's what Dave Gettleman had in his giant ring binder, was just a hard copy of the PFF draft guide. But anyway, you can get yours 30% off draft 2020. My kids are not listening to their instructions to go to sleep. No, I'm going to make, I'm just going to make my play calls behind the, uh, behind my play card here. Hmm. They're not listening. It's not good. Another one of the entertaining fun things from this draft was, you know, obviously seeing the setups of all the head coaches, GMs, and all that kind of thing. So there was a whole spectrum, right? You had Cliff Kingsbury who looked like, a model in a show house, right? <laughs> that was Sitting in this absurd, like modernist, magnificent thing with his shirt and his loafers and his no, like it's ridiculous. Could you, by um, the way, could you imagine how popular he would be if he actually had teams that won? I mean, the guy is I mean, like, he might next year. He might next year. I'm just saying like when he finally starts, you yeah. know, coaching teams that win, he's going to become a legend. So the contrast between him like that 
Bill Belichick in a in like a rundown, crappy looking kitchen with a dog sitting next to him who appeared to be operating the controls. In fact, everybody that was involved in the Patriots war room, it was uh, Belichick, Nick Casario, is that his name? Yep. And uh, the, Mar- uh, the, the Crafts, right? Robert and Jonathan. None of them appeared to have any, like, I don't, like, I wouldn't trade my house for what they were in. Now, the outside confines of that particular room they were in may well be superior. But from judging by those rooms alone, none of them appear to be in a particularly nice getup. By the way, I think those are the only four guys that are in the normal draft the room Patriots, anyway. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is it. You see those. You know, that's the that's the big thing, too, because we work with every team. And it's like 32 different styles. There are right. some teams who invite every last scout and they just stand there for three days. Like uh, usually usually like day three, they need them for UDFA stuff. But it, what started every team's me on, different. What started me on that was that Matt Nagy is sitting in a room that appears to be wallpapered with all of his old play call cards, all yeah. his old play sheets. It's just a, like it's like the lunatics asylum. It looks like it looks like Rick's office. With his whiteboards, where it's just madness. The lunatic scrawls of a psychopath before he's hauled away to jail. Like Matt Nagy just has all of his, you know, sideline play sheets just glued to the wall. It's everywhere. It's insane. I love it. We don't, let's not get off the rails here, Sam. It was yeah, it was it was done. fascinating. Well, I've done. That's all my winners. I got one more. Who, who's your last winner? We might we have uneven winners. Uh, the Giants the giants and their not move down strategy they just they got good players at every at every spot they did um, i i really thought my i was wrong about a lot of things but <laughs> my prediction for the draft was that andrew thomas would fall because of combine hype for the other he two did. Not, he did think that remember i did think that and he didn't he went at four um now i wasn't as bad as some other models who thought this was an impossible a zero percent chance god not good I mean, what, so what? It, like George and Eric being upset by that, I can understand, right? They're math geeks, and that's the kind of thing that would piss them off, right? I have zero mathematical ability. I did intermediate GCSE level maths, so not my strong suit. And yet, I can tell you that if most places were saying the Giants were going tackle at four, and most uh, most places also believed there were four tackles in a very close bunch at the top of this group for one of those four tackles to have a 0% chance of going at number four is just bad modeling. Like if, that's, if that's a result at the end, it's wrong. It's like, broken. The way you described that was fine. And it is not like Andrew Thomas didn't come out of nowhere. Like not only right. did we have him number one and we're an authority on this stuff. We had him number one on our board uh, among the tackles, but it was also like discussed in NFL circles. Like, Hey, there's four, there's a big four. And they're mm-hmm. all and, and teams have them all over the place. Some teams like Beckton, some teams like Werfs, some teams like Thomas, some teams like Jedrick Wills. Like it was actually discussed. So yeah, Andrew Thomas goes at four. Nice job. Um, and then they doubled up a tackle with Matt Parrott in, in round three, one of my favorite players. I just think that is the perfect developmental tackle. A guy who already has all the skills, actually performed well in college and still has room to grow because he's young at the position. And that is a perfect situation for them to eventually get off the Nate Solder contract. So they're rolling three deep a tackle. Good news for Daniel Jones there, Xavier McKinney in the second round. I just like a lot of their picks, you know, especially those really those top three that are um, the most important ones. Even Darnay Holmes is a pretty solid pick in the fourth. Really speedy corner out of UCLA. So good job, Giants. Yeah, Xavier McKinney I really like as a pick. Uh, You know, somebody was saying that he's basically – he basically had the same role as – 
as Isaiah, Isaiah Simmons, yeah. except without all the fanfare, right? Because he right. wasn't, you know, a giant freak. In, in addition to that, he was just a regular size safety who was playing he, like that. And he only runs four six instead of you know four four. Right, but he it gives you like I think that's way more versatile because he'll play safety. I think like Simmons is just going to play linebacker and lose eighty percent of that versatility, whereas. McKinney could legitimately do the same things as a safety and be way more useful because of it. So I like that. Um, the Giants have done some nice things over the last couple of years, like adding those types of, of coverage players. They've added a lot uh, to the secondary, versatile type players, safety corner hybrids and all that stuff. So that is moving in the right direction for the Giants who need help on the defensive side of the ball. They, I mean, this thing is moving in the right direction. Now everything just hinges on whether Daniel Jones develops. If he does, the Giants have, in the face of a lot of people, including us, mocking them yep. along the way, turn this thing around pretty conclusively. If he doesn't, I mean, it's all been for nothing. Because Honestly, it won't matter. Gettleman's picks the last couple of years. Right. As far as getting good players, I think he's done a good job. Now, it's not even the last long. couple of years. He's always a been few. pretty good at that. Yeah. I mean, Dexter Lawrence, you say what you want about positional value in the first, maybe not. But it does come down to Daniel Jones. And and Daniel Jones, I think, can at least be a competent NFL starter. It's every time we tell you tell them to potentially look elsewhere. It's because we don't know if he's in the in the top eight to ten. Right. But he could be a competent NFL starter. I think so. As much as we sort of, you know, said earlier that he's got that that ultimate hubris of, I believe I'm better at this than everybody else. Like he might be among the better talent evaluators, but where he screws up is, is because whether it's, whether it's justified or not, because of that hundred percent confidence in his own ability to just playing the draft, right? He just drafts like it's, here are the spots that you pick in Dave. And he goes, okay, sweet. Here's my list. Uh, just tell me when I'm up and he picks, right? Whereas half the draft is, I mean, literally, what could be half the draft is understanding <laughs> yeah. where your market is compared to other people moving around so that you can still draft your guy, but you do it at a better value spot, right? So maybe I can drop down 25 spots, still get my guy, and pick up an extra pick. If you, you can't do that if you just sit there and go, tell me when I'm up, and I'll select the next guy on my board. Like, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't trade down ever. He doesn't – he'll take a guy like Daniel Jones, right? He'll take a Daniel Jones yeah. at six – because he thinks he's the guy. You're like, well, okay, but what if you could have got him 10 spots lower with a simple trade down? Or, you know, he, do, he does none of the additional sort of playing the game element of it. He just believes it as a technical exercise. It's a great way of describing it. I don't want to see, we always joke about scouts because scouts have a different view of the game than we do, um, even though there's some crossover. I also think that scouts in general, in all sports, have a really high opinion of their own opinions, sure. right? And I mean, you, you see to, this, right? It's like, it's your, it's your raison d'etre. If you don't believe that you're the shit at it, then like, you're just, what are you doing here? Right. So if you ask a scout who should be making football decisions, they would say a scout, but truly the the best decision makers are essentially like, I mean, it's, it's playing the stock market. It's, it's, yeah. um, having an understanding of market, the market. I mean, it's, you, you want an economist essentially, uh, work in the draft board. Now, to put the draft board together, I think you want all those skill sets. You want you want something numbers based. You want something scouting based. Um, you want something positional value based, right? And that's where you run into the issue. If you're just a scout and it's like, he's my best player. Oh, he's a running back. Oh, he's my best player. Go right. right? If you don't have other people feeding into that, saying 
he's your best player at running back. Therefore, he's now 35th on the board, which is great. You know, whatever that is. Um, that's where I think you just need those other voices and angles to truly maximize a roster. As far as picking good players, though, yeah, you could do that if you're a, a really good scout, maybe. All right. Are we um, in the losers? Yeah. Give me your first loser. All right. Now we're back to this. Aaron Rodgers is the biggest loser of this entire draft because for the first time ever since he got there, his team has pretty unequivocally dropped the boot on him and said, your future here is a question mark in a way it's never been before. Um, and so he went on Pat McAfee's podcast, I think, before the draft. And they were like, hey, Aaron, what do you, what do you want on the draft? And Aaron was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we drafted a skill position guy because they'd, they'd never drafted one in the first round while Rodgers was there. Rodgers was the last skill position player they drafted in the first round. So they were like, hey, it'd be you know, kind of cool if we got a first round receiver instead of taking these mid-round shots that don't pan out. Not only did they not do that, well, you know, they did. They answered his prayer and they drafted a skill position player. It just so happens that it was his replacement. Um, then they come back and they get running back, you know, a, a bruising running back that doesn't really fit A, today's NFL, B, hardly a position of weakness given their backfield. Then they start getting offensive linemen. Their offensive line's already good, albeit, sure, it's undergoing some change, could do it getting younger, whatever. In arguably the greatest draft for wide receivers that there has ever been, the Packers did not take a single wide receiver. The only receiving threat they took was the ru- the bruising running back that doesn't really qualify and a guy who Mike says his ceiling is being Kyle Juszczyk. So basically becoming the best receiving fullback in the NFL. Even if that guy hits his ceiling, it's worse than just getting a competent slot receiver, which were like growing on trees in this draft. Like uh, KJ Hill, right? Went in the seventh round. Like you could have, just fall on the, thrown in a pick it's, with a random it's a name on it. It's a philosophy difference, Sam. But it, that's it, the problem, just, right? So this, it, this philosophy shift has signaled that Rodgers is being marginalized and de-emphasized and made yeah, less important. Maybe, to a point, right? I think they... I'm trying to play the other side a little bit here, right? Good luck. I think they truly... Uh, it, they're, they're making the wrong moves. Yes. I think they truly believe that the team success... Is is not necessarily driven by the quarterback. Same, okay? I do as well, and that's the problem. I, I right, so that's the first thing, and that building the other teams will make the quarterback actually look better, and that that is the best way to win games. And I think that's fool's gold. I think that is, uh, you know, that is a mistake that teams make. And it, and my, what I said on our little brunch, that reminds me of what the Seahawks are doing. Right. I mean, this they are duplicating the Seahawks model of taking this great quarterback and saying, I'll put him in position to succeed. We're going to run the ball and run play action. And then you're going to take your downfield shots. Now, as much as our analytics friends like to say how Russell Wilson's been put into this terrible situation, there's also a piece of what the Seahawks do that put him in a great situation because he is a great deep ball thrower. And when they take shots, they take shots. Right. When they run play action. They're not just like play action, you know, a little screen, getting the defense moving. They are taking shots, playing to Russell Wilson's skill set. There's also a chance that Russell Wilson might not be this really good high volume guy that you really want to throw the ball 40, 50 times, whatever. But the Packers might be able to get one of those like eight yards per attempt seasons out of Aaron Rodgers, say. 
because of this downfield passing attack that they're going to build, even though they have nobody to get down the field and catch the ball. But they might be able to get that. But the problem is they want to do it by keep having him throw 20 or 25 times when you'd actually still rather have him throw 35 or 40 times at seven and a half yards per attempt or seven yards per attempt because you're going to have a more efficient offense. All that said, you said, is Aaron Rodgers really a top eight quarterback anymore? By our numbers, he's right on the fringe. By every other advanced metric, as far as how good the offense has been, it's middle of the pack from a passing game standpoint. So this is us saying, you know, people say we, we think highly of ourselves, Sam, right? We believe in our grades left and right. The margin of error in our grades, right? You take that in and say, if our grades are that different from the offense, one of two things is happening. There's like a margin of error that our grades are overrating Rodgers a little bit or the system supporting cast or whatever has been poor. I do think there's a little truth in both where Rodgers has performed better in our grades, either, not necessarily than he should have, but certainly better than the offense has performed. Has he taken a couple too many sacks? Is he not taking the easy stuff, right? So I kind of get where they're coming from in the sense that the offense just hasn't been great under Aaron Rodgers since 2016. Like how long are we going to wait for 2011, 14, 16 Rodgers to show up? It shows up in glimpses and it hasn't been here for a while. So I'm not justifying them. I'm trying to get into their reasoning of where they are. And now I completely disagree for getting a guy not even on our top 250 draft board as a big thumping 2000, uh, 1989 running back. Right. I mean, it's like yeah. grabbing Christian Okoye right now. Um, I just think this is, yeah, you're right. I think it, it Did does I make any sense there. I don't know. It, it's just, bit. it kind of makes sense in my head. It does articulate, I think a fundamental shift in what they are thinking is the way to win football games. Like this is basically a declaration that I want to, I want to make this offense function. I want to de-emphasize the quarterback. I want to pivot away from one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, marginalize him, de-emphasize him, focus everything on a powerful ground game, new Bruising running back, new offensive lineman. I want to grind people into dirt. I want to load up on defense, and I want to win every single game 12 to 9. And that's fine, but almost every single shred of evidence in today's NFL suggests that the opposite is the way to do things. So they've essentially said to Aaron Rodgers that, hey, you know the way you haven't been playing that great recently, and we've tried a lot of things to make it work. You know, we fired the old head coach. We brought in a new one. We tried some young receivers. They didn't really pan out. We could have got you a new receiver in the first round this year and, you know, really gone all out to make sure that you had things the way you like them so that you can get back to that 2014, 2011, 2010 Aaron Rodgers. They could have done that. Instead, what they did is they said, you know what? We've actually decided that, you know, you may never get back there. And instead of trying to help you get back there, we're actually just going to de-emphasize your impact in the whole thing. We're going to make you less of a part of this thing so that you don't screw it up anymore. And actually, we're just going to ride the running back. So, I mean, Rogers has basically been told without being told that you're not as important as you used to be. And we're not really that concerned with whether you find it easy anymore because we're going to take it out of your hands and give it to the big bruising dude. Um, it's like, it, this is as blatant a slap in the face as I've seen like an organization give to a player without like, <laughs> just basically saying without like a contract standoff. Involved. I, know. I, I just wonder if there's a lot of football people who, who just believe like that. Like, I wonder if the coaching staff of say the Patriots, or if you asked Bill Belichick, like, has Tom Brady really been the catalyst the last 20 years? Or do you think 
he just happens to be a great quarterback within uh, a good supporting cast and a good coaching, you know, a good coaching staff and all these different things? Or do you think you're going to you're winning 12 games a year because you've got this baseline of awesome at quarterback? Right. Or do do the Saints believe that with Drew Brees? The fact that the Patriots have never like the Patriots never drafted a first round skill play, or at least not pass catcher for Brady until last year. And it was Nikhil Harry. The, the Packers did the same thing. I want do though, both of those organizations think that their quarterback is just part of the, the, the greater good. Whereas I think the Saints have kind of tried hard around breeze a little bit. The Colts definitely tried hard around Peyton Manning. The Chiefs are going crazy trying to help Patrick Mahomes. Sure. I mean, that's see, that's the thing. Like if I have a baseline of great at quarterback, I'm trying to burn the league down. I'm trying to dominate and give them every weapon that they could possibly handle to just dominate the league. So and the Packers went the other way. I didn't give. Did I give my analogy on the last podcast, or was that just I don't to remember, you? Man, I uh, dude, this weekend's a blur. Just right, bring same, it, right? We, bring see, it back. well, not only are I going to bring it back, but we're going to stitch it in, right? The I think it. I think what they're doing. The well, the the generous interpretation of what they're doing is they have a master plan, right? The master plan is in order to get Rogers back to where he used to be. We're not going to give him help. We're not going to say, hey have this shiny first round receiver, what we're going to do is we're going to piss him off, right? Because just like uh, White Man Can't Jump, Woody Harrelson, what was his character's name? Damn it, I don't remember. Just don't like remember Woody would say to Sidney Dean, is unlike regular people, I assume you play better when you're mad. So that's what it reminded me of. And right around now, Ken is going to work his magic and stitch in the clip. Hey, I'm, I'm doing two things. What? What are you doing? I'm making him mad. Most guys don't play good when they're mad. Look, you Come know on, you're embarrassing me. That's what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I'm doing. I can't believe this. You know, you're not embarrassing me. You are pissing me off. That's what you're doing. Well, good, because unlike those guys, I assume you play better when you're mad. Am I right? I'm not listening to you. Yeah, but you oh, are no. hearing me. You're hearing hey, me. Sit down. Sit down. What are you throwing up bricks? What did I just say to you? What, you still throwing up bricks? What is this, a Mason's convention? What? Clank, clank. I need like a welding torch to play in this league here. I got an idea. Let's stop right now and let's just gather up all these bricks and let's build a shelter for the homeless so that maybe your mother has a place to live, all right? That's what the Packers are doing to Aaron Rodgers. That is the master plan. We call it the I mean, white We discussed man that as a master, master plan. plan. We did discuss that as a master plan. Right, but I don't think we broke out the white man can't jump reference. Yeah, that, that was, that, yeah, I don't think everybody's gotten the analogy yet. Well, they will when they um, watch this. To just sum up the Packers draft one more time, though, A.J. Dillon in the second oh, round. sorry, you meant like with words. The actually, yeah. Um, DeGuara, who you mentioned, is a, an H-back type. And then they got three offensive linemen in a row. John Runyon, Jake Hansen, Simon Stepaniak. Um, six, sixth rounders. But again, the theme is run game. Yeah. Right? Three offensive linemen, a bruising running back, an H-back, and all of the... And, Jordan Love, yes, the guy that's going to be the replacement. Like, so I pose the question, do you think teams, how many teams do you think just called the Packers about Aaron Rodgers? Like, no, hey guys, I saw you just drafted a right. first round quarterback. And no wide receivers in the greatest wide receiver draft of all time. It's just like, it, it's like, hey, the first, like drafting his replacement, Jordan Love in the first round, trading up to dead. That was a fairly, like fairly clear message. But just in case he didn't get that, we're going to send like a skywriter above his building and hand deliver like a kissogram. And, like the next, like every, this entire draft from start to finish was just about like, screw you to Rogers. It's amazing. Uh, sorry. What was your question? 
Oh, teams calling about Rodgers. Yes. So if they trade him now, it's like a $51 million dead cap hit. If they trade him in a year from now, it's like $19 million. So yeah. they're stuck with him for a year, right? But in a year's time... Oh, no, sorry. It's not a year. It's, it's after June. After June 1, it's a $19 million hit. So if you're the Patriots... I mean, depending on what you're willing to give, the Packers yeah. like ni- the Packers would have to eat nineteen million dollars worth of dead cap hit. But like, if, like put it this way: if Rogers is reacting to this with like fury and thunder and all the vitriolic poison in his capacity, like he could for he could probably force him to eat that. So the one the, here's the one other component too: the Shanahan slash um, McVeigh slash LaFleur, like that scheme and system does a great job of creating productive quarterbacks. They have a history of creating productive quarterbacks, taking mid-tier quarterbacks and getting top 10 production. Jimmy Garoppolo just did it last year, Mm -hmm. right? Went to the Super Bowl. They have a history of it. Kirk Cousins has done it. Matt Ryan went from one of the top eight guys to MVP. They have a history of this stuff. But the system also takes a little bit off the plate of the quarterback, just a little bit. As far as pre-snap stuff and that's not clean across the board, but they it's it's less like when Brady Rogers, Breeze Manning, we always use the, the elite four, right? Like they're in full control of the game, right? If they want to call their own game, they can do it. Whole playbook at, the, you know, at their disposable uh, disposal at the line of scrimmage. I wonder if LaFleur doesn't think he can mesh with Aaron Rodgers because of it, or if he truly believes the system's so good. <laughs> that I could take six steps down on the quarterback ladder, whatever that is, and get just as good a production as long as the rest of the pieces are together. And in his head, six steps down on the ladder is Jordan Love in two years. I just think there's a bunch of coaches out there that I don't know if it's like a nostalgic thing that they yearn for the days when three yards in a cloud of dust. But I think there's a bunch of coaches out there that think that's still the way you win football games. That, hey, this passing stuff is nice, and but you know the run and shoot couldn't run the four-minute offense, so it can't succeed. Like I genuinely think that there's still a whole, like not an insignificant group of people that still think that way. Like, all this passing is great, but what about when I need to chew four minutes off the clock? I need a running back that can grind three yards in a cloud of dust every time. And if I do that and control the clock... You can't win. Like I, I think that's it. They just—that's yeah. what he believes, and that's what they're going to try can, and do. Again, I, I'm trying to get. I can understand why people believe that because if you just look, if you look, you can only see what you're looking to see, right? I always say that too. If you're, if you are looking back and you're like, who was successful last year besides the Chiefs, San Francisco 49ers? They ran it. Baltimore Ravens. They ran it. Titans. They ran it. Like if you just want to go back and see rushing yards and successful teams, you can find it. But you have to look further for the how they got the there. 49ers thing is actually an interesting point because like all the time, guys, you know, you sign a free agent because that guy went off against you when you played them. And it's it's the dumbest process in the world. Right. It's like, hey, this guy had a six pressure game against yeah. us. Like, yeah, but he had six the next 12 games combined. So he's probably not very good. Um, the 49ers wrecked the Green Bay Packers by just running all the hell over them. And it's the same kind of coaching tree, you know, same schematic branches. So if you're LaFleur, you're like, well, this is what this is supposed to look like. And it dominated us. Yeah, but I keep coming back to like the NFL should not. It should not. It is a copycat league, but it should. It is really an innovators league. 
right? Let's go back to all the good teams. Like the Ravens did not copy anybody last year right. on their way to the best record in the NFL. They innovated. Belichick and the Patriots are known for innovating, right? All that they do is adjust to the times, Dude, and they're ahead of the curve. Breaking news-ish. Uh, LaFleur's actually come out and said they're going to use him in, as a Kyle Juszczyk fullback role. They, they drafted, That's breaking news? They drafted a fullback yeah, in the third round. They really are trying to be the Niners. I really but seriously like that. Like that might be a thing that he took a look. He is sitting there with visions of the NFC championship game in his brain that this is what my offense is supposed to look like. And it just blew us out of the water. I'm going to do everything they did. I'm going to get a fullback. I'm going to get offensive linemen. I'm going to get a, a bunch of running backs and to hell with my quarterback. Yeah, I'm thinking about it, man. It, it happens all the time. Coaches do this all the time. We've actually heard them say, like, look, we're we were bad on third and one last year. We're going to get better on third and one. We're going to we're going to if there's one thing we're going to do this offseason, we're going to be better on third and one. And all right. So you're gonna better on those 15 plays. Great. Right. I mean, that's what the, that's what that move feels like. The one thing that makes sense is like they run the same offense in the concept of that's how my offense should look. Now, the process to get there. Might right. be different. So, I mean, George but, brought um, this up earlier, and I, I kind of dismissed it without making that connection in my head. It's like, I don't think they would react necessarily just to being blown out of the water by the 49ers. But when you connect the idea that that's the same coaching tree, that's the same offense in theory, like now suddenly it's, well, crap, I just got blown out by what is supposed to be my offense, and it looked a hell of a lot better than mine did. So this I'm going to do what they did. I really just uh, can we go back through time? I mean, this we're going to let the podcast get off the rails here. Let it. Can get we off just the go? Rails. Can we go back through time and just look at all the good teams and and just let me know if they were innovators or if they were copycats? <laughs> okay. So the Legion of Boom, the Seattle Seahawks, that run that they had, they were innovators. Yes, they ran cover three, cover. They ran their system. Yeah. All right. We already mentioned New England. Their entire run, Brady and Belichick, was mm-hmm. same offensive te- terminology but new offensive system every single year. Uh, 2017 Eagles went forward on fourth down a little bit more. Like they had, they had a two tight end yeah. offense. Like they were innovators, right? Well, um, yeah. The Falcons of 2016 were a Shanahan system, which was innovative in the nineties and has continued to evolve. And Shanahan system last year evolved more jet sweeps left and right, more gap run and all that stuff. And now the teams that are in the Shanahan tree is McVay going to look at him and say, Oh, we need that. And LaFleur is going to, we need a little bit of that. They're going right. to start copying Shanahan success. It's already happening. You have to innovate though. But technically you can say, uh, yeah, I guess if you point to the Eagles innovation as the sort of analytics part of it, because otherwise they're just taking the Andy Reed coaching tree and trying to make that function. Uh, look, I'm not saying everybody's like completely changing the game yeah all right it's it's um, a valid point can, i think to say that innovators is made way more sensible than trying to replicate other people andy reed's also an innovator yes right he's he's been like forget running backs for years now he just drafted one in the first round <laughs> but he's been saying i'm passing the ball and if i have to pass the ball 22 times against two runs like i'm gonna do it right that that's been right. that's innovative let's get through some losers otherwise we're gonna be here all night <sighs> sorry i'm having fun man i i just got a burst of energy i know i, I see it it's, it's I don't know visible. why. I'm actually trying to avoid going to see my wife. She's very angry at me. I mean, if she's listening right now, she's going to be even more angry. We're not live, so she's not listening. Oh, that's true, yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. 
yeah, you're probably not okay happy. Then. So I'm trying to prolong this. Can we stay on the pod a little bit longer? Well, you, I mean, I can, um, I can leave and you can just hang on the call. Like, if <laughs> Perfect. You need. My turn for a loser. It's the Chargers. If Justin Herbert's a winner, the Chargers yeah, team right. yeah. is a loser. Um, the first two moves were certainly head scratchers, right? Um, I, I don't even want to say the Herbert move is a head scratcher. I, I get why they did it. Just we just dis- yeah. we disagree with the evaluation, right? Right. I, I, it's it's not like I'm not two years. I'm two months removed from doing the same thing in a mock draft, right? And sitting there as the fake GM of the Chargers with not my job on the line, saying I feel stuck at the quarterback position because I like Burrow and Tua. And when I was doing this mock draft. I think I very specifically said, I'm not allowed to go sign Cam Newton or Jameis Winston. I'm not allowed to go sign a free agent. In real life, I would make that move and not force a Justin Herbert pick. They forced the pick, and then they traded up for a linebacker who we think was the fifth best linebacker. I'm willing to acknowledge if there's a position I'm not going to completely go to bat for, I'm not going to go back and say this, oh, he's the fifth best linebacker. He's terrible. He's an athletic kid, Kenneth Murray out of Oklahoma. But they gave up two picks to go get him, a second and a third to go get him. He has to be the equivalent of two picks. Super risky. We just don't love what the Chargers did. Yeah, I mean, I think there's three things I don't love about the Murray part. One, you traded up to do it. And just as a general rule of thumb, trading up for a non-quarterback is a bad idea. And then if, if you're doing that, there's like a sliding scale of importance, right? And it's basically the position values. So if you if you absolutely insist on trading up to secure your guy, next up is wide receiver, cornerback, pass rusher, pass protector. Like it's it's the sequence of valuable positions. Run stuffing linebacker is like the bottom thing on the list. It's like the last thing you should possibly be trading up for. So trading up for that is bad. The fact that he's more of a run stuffer and not so great in the coverage, bad. And the comparison as to what else was on the board in terms of linebacker ability at that time, also bad. So that particular pick is bad in three separate ways. Um, The Herbert thing, so I hadn't really thought about this much before because it's just like, well, of course the Chargers took Herbert. If they hadn't, who else was in? So one, if, if they hadn't, who else was in the market? And if they, by extension, do you think anyone was calling the Chargers, or were they just like, screw it, now he's gotten to the Chargers, he's going there. This is one of the things I would just love to know. Right. Who? About, what was the discussion going on? Who else was involved? Blah, blah, blah. Like, what was going on behind well, the scenes we don't see? Well, in general, right? Like, this weekend determines what we think the NFL value to play right. at, right? Yeah, yeah. Mason, only- there, were, there were rumors a couple years ago that um, maybe, not, maybe not the Steelers, but so, maybe the Bills were going to take Mason Rudolph on the first if they didn't get Josh Allen. Right. Like, so there was at least one team that was going to take Mason Rudolph in the first round. And if that happened forever, a first rounder, right. Right. Justin Herbert is forever. The sixth overall pick. Josh Jones is forever. Like the 77th overall pick, whatever he was. But I talked to two teams who had him in the top 32. Yeah. Right. It's just the board didn't fall that way for whatever teams were picking. And it, Josh immediately, Jones fell. it immediately changes everything about that guy. Right. Cause Rudolph. Really now, you're right. Rudolph now is done. Right. He had yeah. a few games. He looked like crap and he's out of there. Right. If Rudolph was a first rounder and he played exactly the same up until now, you would be like, OK, well, the, you know, the initial the initial like yeah. debut didn't go so well. But we're, we're, we're going to re- first rounder. Right. Mason Rudolph. But we're going to reload. We're going to give him a second yeah. offseason. We're going to get him ready and then it'll be good. Right. 
like that changes that dude's career if, if yeah. just based off like the way other things change, the butterfly effect. So what, where I was getting, where I was going to with this is like, I don't like taking Herbert at six because I just don't think that he's got a good shot of panning out. Right. And it's the same reason I didn't really love Daniel Jones at six, although that is, it's still indeterminate, but it's looking better than it did at the time. Right. But I don't think that Herbert's going to pan out. So I wouldn't take him at six. On the other hand, I don't think, Love's going to pan out either, and there's no other quarterback in this draft after those top two that I was confident in. So if the Chargers got to the point where it's Herbert or no quarterback, what would you have done? Now, you, I think, would have gone after a Jameis or a Cam Newton in free agency, right, and taken someone else. Yeah, yeah especially I with would that be, I would roster. be intrigued if I could get out of that first-round pick entirely and flip it for a 2021 pick and live with a year and try and make a run at a quarterback next year. Now they're going to win uh, more for games. Anybody but the Chargers, I'm with you. If if we're talking about the Panthers right now, like I'm out of there. I'm looking right. at the future. My problem with the Chargers is their roster is so good. But I mean, like, get out of it completely. I don't mean like trade it back for a second and a first next year. I mean, like, here's my here's number seven this year. How much of next year's draft will you give me for that? I want your first round pick. I want your second round pick, and I want two thirds, right? Like I want, I want a lot because that point you've got the ammunition to make yeah. a run from like 15 or wherever they're going to be next year. I mean, I'm assuming. So here's two questions I have between Herbert and love, right? Was, was Herbert the number two on the chargers board? Right. Or was he number three? Right. Would, did they believe in him more than Tua? Would they have taken Tua? And then with, with Jordan love, was he the Packers number three? Like if when you trade up for a quarterback, right? You must be saying like he's the second or third best quarterback. Like when Rodgers fell, everybody likes to compare it to the Rodgers thing. Everybody expected Rodgers to go number one overall. And then he fell, or potentially, and then he fell to yeah. twenty whatever. Nobody expected Jordan Love to go number one overall. Right. They were like, Oh, he's a fringe first. Somebody's gonna fall in love with him. But he might go in the second as well, or whatever it is. I can't imagine that Jordan Love was really like just behind Joe Burrow on their board. Was he just behind Tua? Absolutely. That I mean, I, I know people that had him as the number three, and I could see that, right? Like, we talk about him and Herbert. Like, what's the big difference? So that's interesting to me as well. But, yeah, I don't know if other people valued Herbert as the sixth guy. Yeah, he may, Maybe the Packers coveted him over right. love. Like, if he got what past the, the Chargers, would they have come up for him? I would love to know where they would have gone. But, yeah, my whole point on that is, like, this guy has the draft position attached to him. You don't know what other teams believed in him, and it just maybe never really meshed for them to take him or whatever it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, Chargers, losers. Um, I only have two more, so. Okay, well, I'll do two here then. Um, That's Den- good. Denzel Mims, right? I think, is a loser. Okay, yeah. I love okay. Denzel Mims. Yeah. I think, in abstract terms, I think he might have been the third best receiver in this draft, and yet I am tremendously confident that he will not survive well in the Jets because I just think that the situation is awful. Um, His quarterback is not good at the moment. His offensive system is not good. And they don't, they still have, they basically now have five, six coin flips on the offensive line. Who the hell knows what that offensive line is going to look like. So I love Denzel Mims and I honestly don't think I can think of a worse place for him to land to be successful than the Jets. So Denzel Mims is a loser. Also, he slid, right? Like he went the ass end of the second round when people thought he might go the ass end of the first. So slid slid on draft day, went to the Jets. 
It's just a disaster for all Mims. I'm trying to look up the twenty, the 2012. By extension, Jets. by the way, that makes me a loser because people are going to look at that and go, ah, you thought Denzel Mims was great. Look at him now, sucking. Like, yeah, but he just landed at the Jets. You're hedging right now. Yeah, I'm not hedging. hedging. I'm just saying the Jets are like death for receivers. You don't survive there and look good. It should. He should help Darnold a little bit. So it reminds me a little bit of the 2012 draft class for the Jets, which was Stephen Hill as the second round pick. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying Mims is Hill, and maybe that's what connected it. But Quinton Coples was their first round pick, who was kind of like this high upside, risky pick. Yep. Mackay Becton's the first round pick for the Jets, and Hill was a high upside, risky receiver. And Mims might be the same guy in the second. And Demario Davis went in the third. He became a solid player, but actually late in his career, they they had a high volume. They had a lot of picks, and um, not many of them ended up panning out. But it looked like a really good draft on paper. I could see this Jets draft. I'm not saying it's the most volatile, but I could see it being really good or really bad, depending on of how a few things turn, Mims included. Yeah. What else I'm you just, got I'm here? I'm bummed at that. Um, what else have I got? So, yeah, <laughs> nerds. Nerds were big losers this weekend because, and our nerds as well, right? Our math nerds, George and Eric. Ah, the there was some disgust. There was some straight up disdain on that broadcast hearing some of those picks come in. Well, generally speaking, they're disgusted anytime there's a running back drafted anywhere. Um, yes. And as some people were pointing out, like basically, if you didn't trade down and get a receiver, George was unhappy with you. Very so, unhappy. But generally, the nerds have, have loved the Baltimore Ravens. And so have we, right? The Ravens have done so many smart things over the past year plus. It, driven off the data, you know, analytics backing it up, and they, they go for it on fourth down. They use the math. They do everything. So it's, you know, the Ravens are one of their, there are Baltimore Ravens, as, as the nerds say, right? The Ravens took a running back, and they, they took did. a running back in the second round. That yeah. was just, that was a big kick to the stones for all the math geeks out there. Big yell for the nerds. They were disgusted. And I think what really rubbed it in was when um, Will Brinson tweeted out that there was an analytics-driven decision because they were running from the shotgun a lot, you see, and and a lot of uh, J.K. Dobbins' production had been from the shotgun. So the analytics was driving it. I love love Will. Yeah. That was a bad tweet, Will. Well, yeah, it, 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 well, it wasn't a good tweet, and but I, I'm I'm here for it because, like I say, it it not only the analytics guys are already reeling from the fact. So you're that not a full nerd. I mean, you just I don't you know, have the math chops to be a full nerd, dude. Right. I, like I said, this is an intermediate GCSE level mathematician over here, which is to say, an idiot. So I did. I'm. You know, you get separated out when you start going through education. Are you like an arts guy or are you a, a data guy, right? Do you do science or math or whatever it is, right? Or do you screw around with words? I screwed around with words. Uh, I did a history degree. I do not understand any of this mathemati- you know, mathematical crap. Um, so I'm like, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all on board with learning what it has to tell me as long as it's presented to me in crayon form and I can understand it. Um, all I know is that I've also got a lot of the, you know, schadenfreude stuff about me. I kind of rejoice in the misery of others a lot of the time. Oh yeah. So, I, you definitely do. Right. So the, they, the, you had to cut your losers list list. You had like 37 <laughs> of them. We had to cut it to five. So anyway, the nerds guys were reeling from a kick to the tits yeah. because the Baltimore Ravens <laughs> drafted a running back in the second round. And then uh, 
Will comes in over the top with a with the no, it's an analytics driven move. He runs the from the gun. elbow from the top rope. Like, nah, it's the analytics said because it was a shotgun guy. Don't worry about it. Oh man. So I'm anyway, nerds my, are losers. I'm not going to use my next analogy. Whatever. It's just <laughs> a lot of what they've used numbers to figure out. You, we've been talking about that on the podcast for years. Some of it, right? We haven't been sure. Right. I mean, so I, our I, our world is like. We've been talking about the pass game for a while. A new idea is the whole idea of coverage over pass rush. That was like a new one for us. The idea of like, if you're going to get yeah. a running back, make sure he's a, a pass game weapon. Build through the pass game. I've been trying to tell teams to get six wide receivers for right. years. There's nothing better right? than when those guys do a study and come back with a thing you've been like spouting for ages based off nothing but intuition. They're like, hey, right. here's what the data says. You're like, ah, I was saying that years ago. I just, I was just bullshitting, but it turns out it's right. Um. No, Wait, did we double up on losers here? I said the Packers. Oh God, we're going to talk about the Packers again. <laughs> it's fine. Well, we don't. We don't need any sort of that. symmetry. We've hit everything here. Okay, hang on. What, um, what else we got? Like, oh yeah. So do we did dental names. We do your one more, and then I got. I got one more. I got two more. <sighs> we'll do that quickly. Um, Seahawks, Seahawks. I would say are losers. They just um, don't do things the way other people do. So the thing about the Seahawks is I, I do not anticipate picks more than I anticipate the Seahawks picks <laughs> because it's uh, I've used this phrase before. Like I said, we get to get into the mind of Bill Belichick, which yeah. is like we get to understand what the quarterback. I said the same same thing about Chip Kelly a couple of years ago. Remember when he got full personnel yeah, full control, control in 2015 and it didn't go well. But leading up to that, I couldn't wait because he was an innovative football guy. All that I couldn't wait to hear and see what his moves were. The Seahawks are the same way, right? Like they they use this intuition to build an awesome team to 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 get Russell Wilson, right? To build an awesome team, and they just draft differently. So I'm always fascinated to see which way that they go. Um, but recent drafts haven't been great. Well, what they did last year to salvage thing though, though is to turn one pick into six. Yeah. So. They did the thing we would always say is like, no, you're not perfect and, and get more. And they traded they, uh, their first round pick was not good last year in LJ Collier, but their other picks looked really good. So that's like, that's the example. This year's picks really, I, I think were questionable. Pete Carroll and, is yeah. fascinating to me because he is such a good coach that he is able to overcome the amazing weight of putting himself behind the eight ball with almost every other aspect of what he's doing. Like they run base defense all the time in a league that runs 11 personnel, two thirds of the time. Like the league has shifted to the point where everybody else runs nickel three quarters of their snaps. And the the Seahawks are running base the entire time, essentially saying, no, we are going to run with a, like a designated weakness we're going to run with like a designated mismatch on defense. And we're like, like you're voluntarily handicapping yourself. Um, they always go for the points. Like, uh, we're on the one yard line and we've been graining one yard with ease all day long. Yeah, but I'm going to take the three because pff, why wouldn't you? Like he does like everything that the data points to, they do the opposite of. And yet he is such a good coach. He's able to overcome all of that. And they make the playoffs every single time. Now, Russell Wilson, I'm sure, helps with that. But 
It's just like if we, you know, if you delve in, you get a glimpse inside of Pete Carroll's mind. I think if you got a glimpse inside of Pete Carroll's mind, you would just see like an old black and white movie where the CGI effects is like a guy with a, a puppet on a string. You know, it's like, ooh, like no CGI, just a dude with like a puppet and a, and a bit of fishing wire hanging from it. Like it's that's, just that's everything Pete. in there is is archaic it's anachronistic it doesn't belong in the nfl in 2020 and yet he's so somehow a good enough football coach that he's able to overcome all of that and still march to the playoffs every year i see i i love it you're you're a funny dude and that's a good analogy and you nailed it to a point i also think there's we're an analytics company and numbers-based company and all that stuff i would love to have character grades through the years on these guys right because I think it all comes down to if you're going to evaluate a player, there might be 15 different variables that should be rolled into the evaluation. But they they all every team weighs them differently. I wonder I, I feel like Pete is such an emotional guy and he just loves people. Mm. Right. I feel like the character, like the interviews for him might be like 50 percent of the equation. And I'm not even saying that's completely wrong because like. Like when you sat down with Tom Brady 20 years ago, you probably walked away and like, dude, this guy's just different. Like, I don't know. I'm not predicting him to be the best, but I, this dude's going to work at it. Like, there's definitely some guys you walk away and it's like, no matter what happens, this guy's going to get better. Right. And I don't know if Pete just like thinks back through the years and he's like, I remember Earl Thomas's interview. He told me this and I knew he was our guy. And I sat down with Richard and I knew he was my guy. And you know, that's how we got Sherm. And I feel like that just like drives a lot of his decisions. So he's just sitting there like Jordan Brooks. What is he as a player? As a run stopping linebacker, he does this and that. But I'll, let me tell you about this kid. He's awesome. He fits the culture. He's competitive. I want him in the first round. I, I, I could just see that being how they get their guys a lot yeah. of the time. Well, two and again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I bet, uh, you, I bet he has a good track record in history, but I think sometimes positional value or um, actual on-field performance gets pushed aside a little bit. There's two parts of that. One, so we give Austin a lot of crap because he never shuts the hell up about all the interviews he does with these guys. And, hey, this guy told me X, Y. Like, it gets old after a while, but he's right in that you 100% pick up a lot. Not just from – you don't pick up information or not like information in the words they're saying, like the data they're giving you. But you pick up a lot about a guy just in talking to him. Like – We've all, and uh, there are some people that are worse at this than other people, but we've all sat there with a guy and you've talked to him for five minutes and you've gone, there's something wrong with that guy or that guy's a weasel or that guy's awesome. Like you've immediately got like an immediate read from a guy right off the bat. And after a period of time has passed, you know, like a gut reaction. And then three months passes and you're like, dude, I nailed it. Like in five minutes talking to that dude, I knew exactly what he was. This is but what, you've also been wrong before too. That's yeah, yeah. The, we've all we've been, we've both interviewed people. We've right. both been in the part of hiring hiring processes of people. My first impression of people that I've hired has been like that's why I want numbers on it. Like if I went back and collected data and be like, oh Steve, your your first impression was seventy percent right. right on these guys. But I think you know. My, but my point is, it's like all the it's like everything else in the draft process. That it's like it's it's outliers. It's value. It's eliminating certain things. Right. So like step one of those things would be. There are going to be guys where you go in an interview and you're like, if after five minutes, I would not take this guy on my team if it was a free roster spot and he came with like a bag of gold attached to him. Like, don't want him. Do not, not, 
Don't care how good he is, not touching him. Like, that would be my first thing. I'll, I'm just eliminating those people that I get that feeling from immediately. Then you're going to get the other end of the scale where it's like, I, there's a guy, I want this guy on my team. I don't care how good he looks on, like in, in college. Those are the next guys you're going to start messing with. But whatever. I, I suspect Carroll's probably quite good at that. The other thing is, I think he's also exceptionally good at actually being a man manager. Like, he's a player's coach. I think he's really good at getting guys that want to play for him. And that's yeah. part of where he steals back the advantage over some of this other stuff. Like I say, the, like the, mo- the craziest thing about him is I think he's a really good fundamental football coach. It's just that right. the Seahawks organizationally seem to keep working against it. Yeah, look, last year's draft was good. And you just there's some good, there's some bad. That's how drafting goes every year. I'm just looking at this draft and I'm saying sometimes you have to have draft that uh, drafts like the Bills draft. I think was unexciting, but they've got guys that are going to contribute and play. The Seahawks draft is unexciting. And I, Daryl Taylor and Alton Robinson as defensive ends. Eh, it's all right. Like you got some okay players that are probably going to fill in and play some snaps at a position of need. Colby Parkinson's going to catch a few contested balls, but he's fourth on the tight end depth chart. Jordan Brooks is a run stopping linebacker who works downhill better than he does in their scheme where he's got to get depth and play zone. I think, you know, and Damian Lewis is a good run stopping guy. Like it's just meh. Like again, if I have Russell Wilson, how am I going to build around Russell Wilson to create a dynamic offense and a dynamic team I'm just not feeling that. Brooks is the interesting one because it's such a Seahawks pick, and yet I know there were other teams in the NFL that actually had him ahead of guys like Patrick Queen, right? To yeah. us, it's not even a conversation. It's like one guy can cover, the other guy can't. So, Or not can't. The other guy isn't nearly the same coverage player. So it's an easy decision. But I know that there are teams that think he's better than Queen, and he like th- for rational reasons, not just... Like, I, hey, I value oh, he graded, run stuffers. He graded well for us. He graded right. 89 or whatever. He graded better than Queen. We're just, again, we're just putting more value on Queen's skill set and yeah. coverage. So it's not like, it, you know, it's, there's there's some logic to it. All right, I got two more quick losers. Uh, one, Gardner Minshew. Because the Jags appear to basically be positioning themselves to not be tremendously good this year and probably targeting a quarterback next year, which means Minshew's on a short leash. Yeah. Um, they their entire draft was just taking like athletic underachievers, hoping that like fifty percent of them will turn out pan out well, and the the weight of all of them will mean that we won't be very good this year, and therefore we'll be drafting Trevor Lawrence number one next year. Bye bye Jorts, take it easy. I don't know if that was their perspective though. I think that's what our numbers tell us. I don't know because people evaluated C.J. Henderson as the best corner in the draft. Our evaluation was he's coming off a bad no. year. People did, yeah. No, they didn't. I hate doing I talked to one team that had Henderson over Akuda. True story. I only ever saw one person put him above, and even then it was like what he can become, not what he is. I heard it with my own ears, plus other people mentioned it. You're out of your mind. Okay, so, so, I, so I think a lot of people didn't think that, oh, here's a big risky pick at nine, where we just said, look, if he, you know, he can't play as badly as he did last year. Caleb on chase on, we were lower on than most, but I think a lot of people well, thought he was a first round player at nine. LaVisca Chenault, we thought was a first round player, but there's injury concern there. Yes. So yeah, there's a little boomer bust there. So I don't think the Jags have viewed it that way. They're all but like crazy movement skills. Guy who's never lived up to the production, crazy movement skills, guy who never had the production. Um, LaVisca crazy skills period, but pretty extensive injury history. 
Uh, like yes. All, all, all what I'm telling you is I'm not saying we're wrong for evaluating it that way. I don't know if the Jaguars intentions that you're saying like is related to Gardner Minshew. I, you know, I, I don't know that their intentions were, oh, we're going to get this boomer bust draft for Trevor I mean, Lawrence. Intentions are not. That's what's happening. And True. therefore, I get poor that. old okay. Gardner's going to get dumped for Trevor Lawrence. All right. Wrap it up. What else you got? The Raiders. Um, oh, you just come on. Let's we're an hour and a half in and you still have to find a way to trash the poor Raiders. We need to find a way. It's not like it was hiding. I'm kidding. They took Henry Ruggs as the first receiver in the draft. And I told you last time that that was just nuts. Um, they then like they Arnett as a first rounder. That's a classic example. And the Raiders have done this, what, two years in a row now? Where it's the it's the Dave Gettleman thing, right? So I'm just I tell me when I'm up and I'll pick. Like, okay, but what if the guy you want to pick is is like a third rounder and everyone else is bored? Maybe you can wait. Maybe you could dial it back and get him later. Like, okay, you value Damon Arnett as a first rounder. Fine, right? I I don't even know that that's that crazy. I know there were people that liked him as well. Um, and there's some numbers that he grades really well in. But there's a lot of things that work against him, whether it's speed, whether it's um, age. Like, there's a lot of things that would make you go, that guy's not a first-round pick. So, okay, you think he is. That is a guilt-edged opportunity to die, to trade back, to pick up some extra ammunition, and to take that guy 20 picks later, 15 picks later, whatever it is. Don't take him there. Nobody, you are the only people that are going to take him there. So that's just bad gamesmanship of the draft. Um, and it came after you just went all in on speed. Then, you know, the rest of the, like Amik Robertson. I like that. That's late on. But the rest of this draft, like it's not. Amik was great. I love Amik. blowing you away. Yeah. Uh, last year they took Trayvon Mullen, like 40th, I think it was. That was higher than we would have. This also like completes him. the Khalil Mack thing, and they don't look good at the end of that. Yeah. It's all TBD because Arnett could still be good. I think the point is. Uh, just like I said, line, I'm not going to pound the table for our cornerback evaluations because coverage in general is just so unstable to predict them. But Trayvon Mullen went way ahead of where we would have predicted. He was okay as a rookie, given those expectations. Arnett definitely went way ahead. I don't completely, I don't understand it like over Gladney, over, uh, no, AJ Terrell was off the board. I mean, there was a few guys that we had. Trayvon Diggs. Like I can understand not loving Trayvon Diggs. Jalen Johnson. Jalen Johnson. Yeah. A cornerback evaluation is all over the place. I mean, Jalen so Johnson still remained to be seen. Yeah. But Jalen Johnson in particular, I think, was a great fit for the Raiders. Yeah. Now, he had injury concerns. I think there was a shoulder or something that was working against him. But, like, I, Arnett, Arnett felt like a big reach. Not just our board. What do you also, uh, so, in general, he's got a lot of things working against him. Age, yes. size, I mean, age, arm length, and lack of <laughs> athleticism. He, well, yeah. So here's the thing, right? He is his special subject when it comes to mastermind is man coverage, right? But he's old, which means he had like an athletic advantage over the younger guys he was covering. Um, he's not tremendously athletic. He's got fairly uh, low levels of length. He's short um, and he's not fast. So those are like all the things that you need to be a good man cover corner, and he doesn't have them. Like, well, okay, if you yeah. got a guy who's really good at man coverage, but he doesn't have any of the things that you need to be good at man coverage, that's unideal. So we didn't love that the way they capped off. Yeah, the Khalil Mack trade. 
good discussion, Sam. That was a fun podcast here late on Saturday night, just after the draft. You guys probably listened to it on Sunday or Monday. And if if you thought we were negative, make sure you go listen to the forecast guy. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, George wants to give everybody a C minus or lower. Well, yeah. So go listen to the forecast. Go now. Listen, they've got good reasoning. Like F to D minus. They have good reasoning for all of their. So they're very process oriented. Yeah. In their evaluation. Go check it out. So I don't know, like, you know, we're all locked down. We're all working from home. We've all got endless amounts of time stuck in our house without being able to do anything. There are now four PFF podcasts that are inside, what was it, the top 200 of, like, sports in iTunes. There's oh, us, yeah. obviously, who you're listening to, Jeff Ratcliffe's Fantasy Podcast, there's the Forecast Guys, and there's the Two for One Drafts Podcast with Austin and Renner. So I don't know how much time you have, but if you've got time for four podcasts, go subscribe and rate them all, listen to them all. It is great because I'll say this one thing. I love PFF. I love being a part of PFF and being associated with PFF. But one thing we don't love is when somebody at PFF says something and then it gets like attributed to PFF says like sometimes there are things that we say as a group and then there's individual personalities. If you want to get to the individual personalities at PFF, listen to the four podcasts. Mm -hmm. There could not be any different. Like you and I are very different. We have our own little style. The forecast certainly has their own style. Two for one drafts with Renner and Austin absolutely have their own style. And then Jeff Ratcliffe is a style into his own. Yes. PFF fantasy, right? So it's four different styles here at PFF, all using the same data, just loving football and trying to have some fun. So appreciate everybody tuning in. Hope everybody enjoyed their team draft. You're all going to win a ton of Super Bowls and uh, it's going to be great. Positive draft weekend here. We're going to be back Monday. AFC draft grades and recap and then NFC on Thursday. That's your bonus podcast draft recap winners and losers. Talk to you guys next week. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did go check out kyler murray and his nfl debut that's my favorite thing about nfl game pass you can go back and watch at any time and if you haven't watched a condensed game yet you have to try it out it's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire nfl game in the fraction of the time it normally takes it's how i'm able to follow all the mvp candidates all the breakout stars and of course your waiver wire pickups all season long to see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at nfl.com slash pro football focus NFL.
At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa Automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa Automotive battery and save $25. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831.20.